Today's Heavy Strategy is sponsored in part by Collide. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. To find out how, visit collide.com slash heavy strategy. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash heavy strategy. Sponsor Six Connect automates network provisioning in a DevOps-friendly way. Six Connect's ProVision platform delivers workflows, resource management, DNS and DHCP controllers, IPAM, and more. Find out more about Six Connect's ProVision at sixconnect.com with the number six slash packet. That's sixconnect.com with the number six slash packet. Welcome to Heavy Strategy, where the questions are sometimes more interesting than the answers. And today, Greg and I are going to be talking about the do's and don'ts of selecting technology providers, because most of the time when we sit down with clients, they're doing it wrong. (laughs) You're probably thinking, hey, you're probably thinking, how can you do it wrong? What is wrong about selecting a technology provider? We're going to find out. This follows on from the show we did in episode 26, where we talked about building a technology strategy. We were saying your strategy should not state anything about a vendor shouldn't have a brand name it should talk about the technologies to it should certainly talk about your solutions that you need to solve the business problems that you need to solve and the technologies that you need to use to solve those problems are not part of your strategy which is what we discussed extensively in that episode so step one is figuring out what the business drivers are step two figuring out the technology capabilities that enable those business drivers and only after that and in actual fact a couple of subsequent steps after that, do you start mm. talking about vendors? Mm. Um, so, for example, here's how doing it wrong looks in practice. Uh, our strategy is to move everything to AWS. Wrong. Mm. Our strategy is our business drivers to enhance productivity, to get productivity, we need technical agility. Therefore, we're moving to cloud. And we've conducted a technology selection exercise, and the net result is AWS. Mm. That is how you arrive at that vendor selection. There is there is some gray areas here because a lot of companies are actually saying, we want to move to a single cloud provider. Whatever the technology question was, the answer was AWS. It'll happen on a cloud provider. But I think we're now moving past that era of early adopters in the cloud and they're realizing that no matter how hard you try, you will never be all in on one cloud. Realistically for most, if not all companies, if you're a startup or a one function company, so if you're like, Snowflake is the one I'm thinking of. You're doing data. You will only be on one cloud because that makes sense because you're only doing one thing. But if you're a normal company like any enterprise, you've got dozens of technology functions that you're providing to the business, then you're not going to be on one cloud. You're going to be on Azure. You're going to have something that's on AWS. You know, you'll acquire a company and good Lord, you'll be on Google Cloud. And but I'm going to push back on this slightly, Greg. You're already going two clicks deep into the discussion. Yes. Like, would it be would it be single cloud or multi cloud? I actually don't care. What I yeah. do care is that you started by saying we have made a decision that we need these capabilities, and these capabilities are instantiated by doing mm. either single cloud or multi cloud. And then you begin to then you begin to build out your selection criteria and the capabilities that you're actually looking for before you start bringing the vendor names in. One of the things you need to do before all this happens is validate that the technology capability actually delivers what you claim the business need is. Mm. So for example, if you're gonna say, we need to cut costs and therefore we're moving to cloud, uh, that's a flawed equation because most of the time moving to cloud increases your costs unless you take some very, very special pains in doing that. So therefore, you need to be sure that moving to cloud or whatever your strat- strategic element is actually delivers on the business drivers that you are attempting to meet. The other piece is 
when it comes to doing it wrong, you really want to be positioning the selection process somewhere on the time frame on the roadmap where it's it is a key milestone itself. So select cloud provider is actually a thing, not just move to X. Uh, and it should be happening after the strategy of adopt a cloud first strategy mm -hmm. and somewhere before move your workloads to the cloud provider. So you, sh you should have an actual roadmap that says, here's mm. the milestone of selecting the product. When I'm at this stage of validating technology capability, I always try and tell myself, remind myself that technology is an amplifier. Technology itself doesn't create a sale or create a product. And, you know, there are notable exceptions to this in the startup world, like in new businesses, but technology is an amplifier. The use of Microsoft Word makes it easier to type type documents and to communicate, right? If you're using Excel, it gives you the ability to self-generate reports. So if you're going to talk about technology capability to established managers, don't say that technology is the, so the solution for itself. Pitch it as an amplifier. It increases employee productivity. It allows us to grow um, the factory performance. It allows us to improve sales performance and so forth, right? And well, so what I hear you saying, Greg, yeah. is that when you say amplifier and not capability, what you're really saying is along with some other stuff that we need to do, it will help us do this. So yes. it's not going to increase employee productivity all on its own. But if we adopt the right processes around it and the right training or whatever else it is, yes. then it's, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle that allows us to deliver on this business goal. Because yes, we're, we're technologists, so we tend to, you know, <laughs> we have a hammer and everything's a nail, but it turns out that you need a lot more than just the technology to deliver on any one business goal. That's right. So you're going to focus on how it solves the business, how it generates new businesses because you, you have a better factory or you have faster delivery or you have using technology in the production of services, you know, Salesforce, for example, improves the sales product, you know, productivity of salespeople and so on and so forth. And so if you say we should adopt Zoom, you don't say because it improves communication, you say because it will improve the sales process, allow people working remotely to work, you know, in a stable way and so on and so forth. If you focus on it as a productivity enhancement or something that helps useful work as a technology professional, you'll look more credible then you will if you if you promise something like like the bitcoin people for the last 3 or 4 years have been promising the moon but in fact there is no underlying value there so just it's just a tip on how to position it to managers and executives in my view and and i think the other takeaway on this is as you're moving towards the decision of we are going to select a product and notice we haven't selected the product yet mm -hmm. um, but as we're moving towards that that process your tech it should be part of a technology strategy, which is why we have heavy strategy here. Yeah. But that heavy strategy needs to, your technology strategy needs to include a lot more than just, oh, we're going to buy product X and install yeah. it. It's mm -hmm. got to be, we are going to enable the training. We are going to reorg the operations so that if we're saying we can do something while streamlining overhead, hey, that means fewer people, which means you've got to figure out where those people are going and what they're doing. Yeah. So, so. A part of this, I, I guess the big takeaway for this piece of the show is that you really want to position that selection process in embed it within the matrix of the technology strategy that talks about a whole lot more than just technology. Yeah. And always remember that you're asking management to spend money in theory to save money. And that is always right. a tough thing. Or, or to generate money. I or mean, there's really only, yeah. A, yeah, there's really only a handful of business equations in the universe. There's new dollars, saved dollars, and forced dollars. New yeah. dollars are, we figure out a new way to make money. 
save dollars is what it sounds like and force dollars is because compliance requires it. Yeah. Uh, that's so basically just, it. But do always remember that you're basically saying to somebody, if you spend $20 with me now, you'll have $40 tomorrow. And that is exactly. always a tough ask, even though it's actually absolutely how IT works, but that is the game that you're playing. Well, and let's move on to a couple of things that get bandied about quite a bit and don't deliver quite as much value as they as they purport to. I notice, Greg, you're not a huge fan of this concept of a gap analysis or of ITIL. We pause the podcast to tell you about sponsor Six Connect. Six Connect's ProVision network provisioning platform is a collection of next generation automation tools helping service providers and enterprises update how they do network provisioning. ProVision is modular and API first, which which means it's flexible. Ops folks can use ProVision to deliver whatever sort of provisioning platform they need to to make the business they support happy. Okay, I said modular, so let's talk about some of these ProVision modules. There is the resource manager. Track everything from cross-connects to customers in one place or simply tie into existing systems, including external authentication for low-effort automation. And then there's the IP address manager with full IPv4 and v6 support, handling everything from subnets to host, and it can even help you cope with duplicate and overlapping IP address space. The DNS controller supports several DNS platforms, and that gives you a single pane of glass for DNS provisioning, even if you deal with multiple DNS platforms at the same time. The ProVision DHCP controller integrates with several different DHCP platforms and services for hybrid deployments and handles multi-tenancy and detailed controls. And then there's the peering manager. That's a bridge for router configuration and email comms related to peering. It is integrated with PeeringDB, and that ensures that exchange information is consistent and that peering coordinators get a one-stop shop for BGP session management and human coordination without touching a command line. And would you like to know more? Well, of course you would, and you can do that at sixconnect.com slash packet. That is sixconnect with the number six dot com slash packet. Once more, for API-first automated network provisioning that can bring together many different systems in your provisioning stack, 6Connect with the number 6.com slash packet. And now, back to the podcast. What is it that you don't like about a gap analysis? Because I have to say up front, I'm with you on that. The whole (laughs) idea of a gap analysis doesn't make sense to me, but it's something that is rock solid embedded in a lot of IT processes. But what don't you like about it? It's, well... Quite often, the way that it's a fine tool for performing a starting point for consulting engagements. And if you bring in, if you're coming from where you don't know what's happening, you sit down with customers and you say, well, tell me what you want to achieve and then tell me what the gap is. So what is the gap between what you have and where you're going to? So it's a discovery process for the consulting firm that you may have hired. Or if you're coming in from some part of the business and you don't understand, you're working with the business manager. But then the mistake I think happens is that the gap analysis then turns into a project management. It says the project is driven by the gap analysis. That's very low fidelity. Like you're saying that the information that you gathered on day one has relevance all the way through to the day 300 when the project finishes. That's really not amazingly clever, but that is indeed how most consulting projects work. They sit down, define a gap analysis. The gap analysis becomes enshrined as some sort of biblical text, you know, that cannot be changed. And you're sitting there saying, yes, but in the process, the technology changed or the company changed, or as we went through the discovery of the gap changed, you know, what the thing in the analysis, but that's often a problem. So I find gap analysis a useful discovery tool. And so I I call it a low quality process. It works, but it also doesn't work when you don't have anything existing. 
So if you're introducing something that's new, a new business unit, or replacing the factory for dramatically changing some part of the business, there is no gap. This is a whole, and so much of what we're doing in the last few years has been entirely new. So I think gap analysis is very difficult. And that is a key thing there is to think about your consulting tools that you're using to define your roadmap and how you get there. And I could not agree with you more fervently on that one, Greg, because you, you, you've hit the nail on the head and really highlighted one of the deep uneasinesses I have with gap analysis because it assumes that you're simply, you have a very clear idea of where you want to go, a very clear idea of where you are, and it's just a matter of getting from A to B. And the whole point of new technology is that it's bringing in capabilities that you don't have a clear idea about and you cannot have a clear idea about. So the gap is necessarily kind of fuzzy. And in fact, it's kind of a stupid way to look at it just to talk about the gap because the gap isn't important. What's important is the new the new capabilities and whether they work as, you know, deliver the value that you hope they do. Well, the gap so, used to be, you know, 20 years ago, gap analysis worked because the market wasn't very diverse and IT moved at a fairly slow pace, you know, decadic cycles, mm -hmm. you know, weren't. And the gap analysis had more credibility. And um, today we've got a much more complex market. The diversity of products is very difficult. The complexity of the solution space is far more sophisticated. You could, you know, we're talking today about just from an infrastructure perspective, we've got containers and VMs and bare metal. So, well, I'm you know. I'm going to push back on what you're saying because I don't, you know, the, the, the future is already here. It's only locally distributed. I don't think it's so much that 20 years ago technology was static. It's more different areas of yeah. different areas of technology are moving at different paces. And anytime you're in an environment where there's a rapid pace of change, gap analysis doesn't work very well. And that's that's been the challenge is diversity and complexity makes modern technology decisions much more sophisticated much more complex in, in certain areas i yeah. mean there are certain areas where it's sort of like nope that same thing that we used last year and the year before is perfectly fine uh but there's some areas where all the effort and investment is, is causing a i think with tape drives change. you're right but i think with storage yeah, exactly. it's a very different question you know yes 20 yes, years yes, ago yes. everything was a fixed storage array they only changed on a 10-year cycle. It was very easy yep. to predict how many hard drives you would need. Whereas today, you now need SSDs. You might have some sort of high bandwidth memory installed in the array. How big is your cache going to be? Is it going to be SSD? Really, what you want to look at is, are we applying uh, gap analysis to something that even it, that, that it's even appropriate for? And the chances are pretty good that it's that's not. Right, yeah. but, the, the, the other challenge here is that technical competence is then very difficult. Because if you're going to define a roadmap, you need a high degree of technical competence, but also market awareness. So you need to have a, a wide view of the market. Now, if you are a technology practitioner, or even a business leader, you're probably focused on the tools that you use, rightly so, because that's what you want to be expert in. But if you're going to go through a product selection process, you need to have an awareness of the wider market. And there's a real tension there between focus and 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 broadness, you know, the diversity of the solutions and coming back to the complexity issue, very difficult to establish solid roadmaps when so much is changing as it has over the last decade you know this idea that a backup used to be on tape well now you've got cloud backups and now you've got cloud backups with ransomware protections and virus scanning and, and going you know, exactly the direction i was going mm -hmm. and in fact just to be super self-serving that's where you really want to bring in consultants because they spend their time and or at least some of them spend their time and energy focusing on the big picture and how these different pieces fit together. Yeah. But Greg, I want to push you a little bit while we're talking about low quality methodologies and tools. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, I, I, I know you are not a huge fan of ITIL, and you might want to explain why. Again, ITIL, ITIL is something that caused me an enormous amount of personal pain and uh, <laughs> over the last 30 years of my IT career, and it was horrible. And it took me a long time to put my finger on it. Like, ITIL is, a, is something that appears to work as a common sense. It defines, it establishes a process, you work on it. And, you know, having a process, I remember the days long before we had... Uh, management processes in IT, and it was always the grumpy, grumpy IT guy who was in the basement who just made stuff up. We certainly needed some structure, but today ITIL is a very low-quality methodology, in my opinion. It's developed out of the idea of a manufacturing process in the 70s. That's where it comes from. And the idea is, is that if you have a fact, a big machine in the plant that stamps out metal, and you decide to enter a new market, well, what do you have to do to enter the new market? You go in, you buy a new machine, you, you replace the machine with a new one and you deploy it, and then you forget about it and walk away. ITIL has no idea of sustenance and constant evolution and repeated iteration, and everything's got to be projectized. So this idea that a, an inf that a tool or a development or a technology is a living thing that constantly cycles, that, and that is the underlying root of DevOps, by the way, you know, this idea that a technology, whereas ITIL says, no, no, everything's punctuated. It's got to be chopped up into this chunk and you have to address. So again, I think ITIL is the absolute source of so much unhappiness for IT professionals because we treat them as living things. They're help desk, they're operated every single day. ITIL treats them as a once in a lifetime transitional experience. Well, I like the living things analogy because uh, because I think that's the main, the underlying theme that you don't like both about gap analysis and ITIL is that it doesn't take into consideration rapid revolutionary change, which is the current state of, of IT. That's mm. That's how technology works. So you're basically planning for an environment in which somebody could walk in the door at any moment and say, look, I have a magic wand and it makes things go poof. Yeah. And literally, that is that is the world we're living in. And a process like gap analysis or a process like ITIL doesn't accommodate that. There, it's it's set up with this idea of incremental evolutionary change in mind, very slow, predictable change in axes that have already been mm. defined, not the idea that somebody could walk in and say, ha-ha, cloud changes everything <laughs> yeah. or whatever. It was a good way to work for a short period of time. It, it allowed you to chunk up your work. It stopped the scope from getting out of control. Today we have the anti-ITIL, if you like, is product management. And yeah. the product manager is the, the controller of what's getting done and why it's getting done. And Well, that is or in fairness, you could say Agile is the anti-ITIL. I mean, another way to look yeah. at it is because Agile, you know, the whole idea of Agile is we don't really know what we're doing. We don't really know what, where we mm -hmm. want to go, but we kind of get most of the way there and most of the way is good enough. Yeah. So let's jump in and do it and fix it later, which, by the way, is not wrong. It's just not it's not the universal solution. It works really well for external parties, resellers, vendors, consultants. I'm going to package this up and you're going to come and deliver this thing. But the customer's experience is this, it's this constant system. It's a living thing that needs constant maintenance. And so there's this massive gap between what actually happens and then the experience of that system. And that's why ITIL is a major failure. And it just, for me, it was just such a frustrating thing to work with project managers who were using the ITIL procedure and seeing so much value lost to the business because there was no adaptation to the system that you were defining. But I think what we should move on to is talking about the selection criteria that align your technology strategy and principles. You've sort of said here that- Yeah, yeah. let me let me jump in and interrupt you on this because from my perspective, and I think this is where we disagree. So from my perspective, what you want to do is make neutral third-party objective selection criteria. So mm. for example, things like 
how how expensive would it be to support do we have do we have training on the technology does it you know if for example agility is something that you care about and you've stated as a as a business goal then the selection criteria should basically boil down to how agile does it make us how quickly can workloads move how mm -hmm. easy is it to make changes and modifications so that's a direct linkage back to the technology principles you talked about and you should develop a set a series of selection criteria that are tied absolutely clearly back to the technology principles, which are themselves tied absolutely clearly back to the business drivers. So that if somebody walked in the door and said, what are you doing? And you said, we are selecting a product. The answer is, well, why, why are these selection criteria here? Well, because they enable this technology capability, this technology principle. Well, why do you care about that technology principle? Because it delivers this business value. Yeah. And that change should be absolutely unbroken for every Hence, selection criterion in there. The, the challenge here or the underlying anti-pattern against that is that agility is needed to support change, right? And the but reason agility that, is just an example. That's, yeah, that's, that's right. the key thing. I but picked the thing that out that as an example. We also need yeah. to recognize that change, the rate of change is, ex is increasing. The velocity of change is much faster than it was before. The last 15 years in uh, technology have seen massive advances in language application development, frameworks for writing code, low code, no code, uh, tools online, SAS, PASS, ES, you know, all that stuff. You know, all those things wow. just may comp can appear as people saying, well, we need agility to choose anything. And I think most orgs over-rotate on the velocity of change. They're not going to change rapidly. I think that's all true, but it's sort of irrelevant or orthogonal. Mm -hmm. And the reason it is, is because I'm just using agility as an example because I'm following it through. Mm -hmm. Another example could be we need something that integrates with our existing ecosystem or mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. The point isn't the agility and whether or not people are, yeah. are envisioning it correctly. The point is that the selection criteria, there should be an unbroken connection between we pick this selection yes. criterion because it supports this technology capability that we have determined is important because of this business driver. And that mm. should be something you can explain. You know, really, it's you have to get the five whys down. Why yeah. do we have this selection yeah. criterion? I guess because it supports this broader technology driver, which supports this broader business driver. Yeah. I guess my point here was that don't over my experience of companies saying that they need agility and then they over rotate, yeah. they select for agility, but then they forget that humans only have a limited capacity for change. Sure. And I think, I think that's valuable. Mm. It's just not, it's, it's a bit orthogonal to the example at hand. Yeah, it is. I, I just feel like so many times we say, I'm going to select this technology for agility, like containers, for example, a classic one. It gives us so much more agility. We can do this, this, and this. And yet they're sort of forgetting that people need to be, you know, have to change their processes. They have to relearn. Then you have to put in a whole new monitoring and don't over rotate on agility. The, the question there is, do you really, really need agility? And you know what? We actually find out a lot of the time it doesn't. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, that challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows, and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, 
Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com slash heavy strategy to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash heavy strategy. But I would I would push back and say that whole conversation happens a step before the selection criteria. That's a that's a fight you should happily have when you're talking about the technology principle. So yeah. if you say, OK, my business driver is I need to make the you know, I mean, need to make everybody super productive and therefore yeah. to enable it, I need technology agility. That's where that rant comes in. And you can push that button and say, <laughs> how much do we need agility? Yeah. You know, et cetera, et cetera. I've Once got a rant actually- coming up about features. Later yes, we're 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 get we're getting there, um, which is the good part. You know, the the point is that that when you d- deliver those selection criteria, there really needs to be that unbroken chain back to the business value. Yeah. Um, and now, if you move on to the selection criteria, this is where I think Greg and I may disagree quite a bit. Mm. Um, my recommendation is that you actually do this in the good old weighted scorecard approach and have those fights and arguments about which feature is more important than which other feature mm. before you bring a single product into the mix. So, okay, let's talk about agility. How important is it? Are we overweighting it? Is there some other feature that's actually more important, like maybe price? Okay, if something is less less agile, but is cheaper, is that going to be a Mm. product that we want to choose versus a product that is more agile, but more expensive? And those fights need to happen at the point where you have the selection criteria in hand, but before you've actually populated the matrix with the feature functionality. Yeah. That's my contention. Again, I think weighted scorecards are a twin evil. They can be used for good and they can be used for bad, if you know what I'm saying. And my experience in the real world is that they're marginally useful because the practitioners fail to understand that the weighted scorecard is a subjective item. and But when you put a number on it, people tend to treat it like an objective thing. Yes. Right? You're all, well, see, yeah. I guess we can't disagree on that because I think <laughs> you're absolutely correct on that. I'm more a fan of the one sheet approach with bullet points and leave it a little vague so that people can stay flexible. People don't trap themselves in a corner. I like to think of weighted, you know, so what you're trying to lay out is actually a map, not dogma. And weighted scorecards in the traditional manner, you know, on a factor of one to 10, tend to become dogmatic points. Like, well, this is a nine, therefore we have to allocate this level of, it feeds into the next one. (laughs) Exactly. No, dogma is bad. Theme that's coming out so far is flexibility. So I'm more a fan of the Amazon model, which says, you know, we need a one sheet thing here and it's got sentences, but bullet points. I I don't know that that actually works if you're doing a technical assessment. Generally, you do need a matrix, but I think I think the important point about the weighted scorecard is that you have a bunch of fights without products in front of you. Greg and I may vastly disagree on how important agility is. We have that fight in public. We mm. argue. We sketch on the whiteboard. We shout at each other and wag our fingers in each other's noses. Boy, mm. that would be fun. Um, <laughs> and at the end, we sort of agree to either disagree or we agree as a group that we're going to say it's approximately a seven or whatever that yeah, is. That's right. yeah. Under Understanding that it's fully subjective. But the key thing is you have those fights without a product in front of you because the reason that you want the weighted scorecard is when you start bringing in the product, you find out that despite our best intentions, we fall in love with products. And we all say we don't do that. You Mm -hmm. know, we are objective. We are wise. 
But at the end of the day, maybe you went and hung out with the salespeople and you really loved the sales guy with this new product. And he was so smart and so creative at sketching the image in your head of what his product would do. So you just think that product's just better mm -hmm. and you can't quite articulate why it's better, but you know it is. Mm -hmm. And what the great weighted scorecard does is sift that away. So it eliminates as much as possible the human tendency to fall in love with a product or fall in in dislike with a product you know maybe the salesperson for the other product is boring and, and wears white shirts and has you know pocket protectors and maybe he has halitosis and you're like i don't even like that guy yeah. so i don't even like his product and yet it actually is a better product for you that's what the that's what yeah, the, the scorecard, scorecard you know stating yeah. i think it's just a, it comes down to yeah you know, getting your criteria down and establishing a level of importance there are ways to do it good better best and then putting bullet points underneath it, which is a weighting, but not well, a number. I'm just not a fan of a completed matrix with a number from one to 10 to avoid the dogma. That's And that's my caveat there, because so many times I've... Look, at the end of the day, there's two people who make the final decision on any product. One is the CIO and the other is the senior technology professional associated with it. That's it. Um. Yes, but no. Uh, actually, if, if that's the case, then you're a dysfunctional organization because your CIO should not be making the decision for any product. Your CIO should be signing off on the parts that come before. Yes. These are the business drivers. These are the technology principles and leaving it to the team to figure out which product best aligns with all of those things. I've and by worked the way, in so many having... organizations. And oh, I know. But you, so, you, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a, there's a theme here, Greg. But uh, but the other thing that I think is important is you don't want the subject matter, the technical subject matter expert to make the decision because there are selection criteria that you need to include that have nothing to do with feature functionality. For example, how easy is it to integrate into other systems that you've already invested an enormous amount of energy into and are not going to uninvest? For instance, how viable is the company? And this is a really big deal because I've seen it again and again and again where people will fall in love with a small company that has great feature functionality. Yeah. And you'll sit there and go, Microsoft's going to buy them next year and dissolve them because they're competition. And they go, but, 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 but. And sure enough, they buy the product, they deploy the product, Microsoft buys them the next year and the product goes away and they have to go through the whole selection process again. Well, and so they and waste again, yeah. I, I sit, there's, there's a good and a bad here. Sometimes buying that technology will give you a competitive advantage. And here's the thing, any technology only gives you a temporary <clears throat> competitive advantage because your competitor can get to buy the same technology that you're buying. Unless you're truly developing in-house, which is extremely rare these <clears throat> days, the reality is, is that all the companies have access to the same tools. So a competitive advantage is temporary at best. But what your point is here um, in your selection criteria, talking about futures, I think this is what you're sort of saying here. You know, does this thing have a long life ahead of it? What is the well? I'm, I'm specifically talking about the the vendor's financial yes. viability, not mm. just futures like technology futures. I'm talking about you can't just look at the the product; you also have to look at the company mm. and the company's roadmap and where it's going. And completely agree, by the way, on your statement and actually reminds me of something many years ago Nemertis made a decision that was completely bonkers by outside mm. perspective microsoft outlook was horrendously bad because then as now microsoft fails to understand networking and and concepts like latency mm -hmm. and so we were having an spending an enormous amount of time with trouble tickets around email just flat out not working we decided to go backwards and implement lotus notes and I remember sitting down with our top technologist and saying, all right, how many years are we going to get from Lotus Notes before it goes pause up? And he said three. 
well, we got five good years out of Lotus Notes before mm -hmm. we had to make a change. And that was a good decision, despite the fact that everybody looked at us like because you're supposed worked. to be cutting edge. Exactly. And it didn't have vulnerabilities and it didn't. It was, it, exactly. You know, it, 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 exactly. You bribing but, Microsoft with extra money to secure the product that they'd made insecure. <clears> you know, well, let's <laughs> not. That's a whole different episode, which yeah. we need to re, we need yeah. to come back to. But coming mm -hmm. back to that. The main point is you can make a decision on a product or a vendor that you know is not long for this world as long as you understand that and no, plan for right. it. There was an so. alternative back in those days to do other things. Today, you would have, you know, you would have gone to Google Mail perhaps. And well, that, you know, yes, exa as, exactly. But I think the other thing to do is when you get to this stage, it's also good to pull back. The mm -hmm. importance of the front up section is when you get to this this section, I talk about the horse's head and the horse's ass. When you get <laughs> down to the horse's ass and you're actually down to the, the fine grain details, this is why having the, the broad statements that we talked about up the front about the business need and so forth is that you need to go back and refer to that to double check yourself. So you go back and in the final stage of your technology selection, you know, obviously you want to have integration. Do we have the people? But you also want to go back and reevaluate the business goals against the top of the line where you started out again. Yeah, I think that's actually a very important point. It comes mm. back to your no dogma, right? Like, so you could implement this entire process the way we've described it in a very rote fashion. Here are our business goals. Here yeah. is our technology principles. Here are mm -hmm. our selection criteria that map to the technology principles. Here is our weighted scorecard. And out pops a product that's not the right product for you because you're not internalizing all of this, mm -hmm. double checking it at every step, living it and discussing it. You know, all of this, all of this framework is designed to give mm -hmm. you a framework to make the decisions the right way. It's not crank the wheel and out pops the answer. No, because I I, I, I'm recalling a particular meeting where I sat mm -hmm. down in front of the CIO and the CIO was holding a recommendation document that we'd put together as a team. And, and I thought we were on track to get this approved. And and there was somebody else in the room who was kind of a you know an arch enemy and they wanted the budget for themselves and they had a copy of the business needs and they were saying but yours doesn't match the business needs anymore and he was able to derail me because i hadn't updated the business needs exactly or another another classic scenario is you may have decided that some incredibly important selection criterion you know that trumps all the other ones yeah. is there but nobody meets it so now what do we do yeah. do we even course, buy this product if it doesn't do the one thing that yeah. we're trying to get the product for he derailed me for a bit i got it back on track because i discredited him because he was such a clown but you know <laughs> <laughs> i was able to i was able to turn it around at the end of the day but the point was if you are going to deviate from the it's worthwhile going back and saying did I do what I was going to say? Now, if you don't, then your proposal has to say, we've known things have changed. And I think, again, flexibility. And that's legit. And that's legit. Yeah. You've got to say, in the time since we started this, because it can often be like a half a year or a year that these right. things float around. You can't get too stuck in the mud about the whole bureaucratic and that's how it's done around here. Exactly. It's not um, about it's not about a process. It's more It's more directional. And I think throughout mm -hmm. the process, you should always have at the back of your mind, what exactly are we trying to accomplish? That's right. And the CIO wants to know that you've done your due diligence, but you're also right. on track to achieve what you are what you are asked to achieve. If you're going to deviate, you have to justify it. You said before about asking technologists to evaluate the financial viability of companies. I'm of two minds there. I don't I think it's unrealistic to expect technology professionals to evaluate suppliers. You know, should they be able to look at the balance sheets of 
publicly traded companies and evaluate whether they're solid. It's also very difficult for a technologist, again, to sit there and say, this product has just reached the market and it's going to be a success. Well, that part, yes, I I agree with the latter. I think the former, I also agree with the former, Hmm. but I think that needs to be a selection criterion. And if you're at a large enough company, Hmm. there's obviously somebody who can do that job, likely in procurement. Hmm. And so it's someone's job to go and get their assessment. So for for example, let's be really clear. If there, if a company isn't public, there's a very simple question that you can ask and answer, which is what series funding has it gotten and who are its investors? Yeah. Um, and if it's a series A funding, you may have a blanket rule <laughs> that you never, you know, you never invest in products that have only gotten series A. If it's series C, there might be a blanket rule that says, you know, if it's 300 million or more, we will go. If it's less, we won't. Yeah. And then if it's a public company, I think it's very simple to have your procurement or finance team come back and tell you, all right, here are our rules for deciding that this company is viable or they're on the way down. out. So there's some interesting stuff happening in the industry these days where companies, big enough companies, will actually mm-hmm. take investments in technology companies to- Oh yeah. They, they want Oh the yeah, that is, actually that's been happening for a while. And in fact, back when we, back when we looked at our procurement strategies to assess the success of them, one of them was Big Rock, which is we buy from you know Cisco, Oracle, IBM, mm. Microsoft because it's them. Mm. One is pure play fe- feature functionality. One is ecosystem, and then the fourth that we examined was exactly that custom, where it's a company you invested in in order to get the yeah. feature functionality that you wanted. Because enough big companies are doing that now that it's it's a thing. It's an interesting one. It's just a, I just yeah. raised that as something that's an unusual take on the situation. Uh, one thing I also wanted to flag here is one thing you should not do is don't be overly attached in your career to a single vendor or a single technology. Be flexible. Amen. Um, Amen. So many people get a certificate with vendor such and such, and then all they want to do is because that's what they know, that's what they buy. And that is understandable. That is very human. You buy the things that you understand or that you comprehend, but that does not necessarily mean that your certifications lead to good decisions. It may lead to good operation, but it's not necessarily the right technology to buy. And we've seen vendors certainly abuse the privilege of certifications or offering to teach customers. But the purpose of training was to teach customers how to extract value from the products because they were overly complicated and overly hard to use. And so we had to teach them because customers were saying, I'm not buying your tech product because I, I'm not getting an ROI from it. And so they created training programs to help create that and also to bring reseller communities up to certain competence levels because there was a very widespread. But that was the purpose beyond certifications. But at the other hand, certifications also become a way to get customers on your side. And that's exactly it. And that's why Cisco, um, both uh, Novell and Cisco did a fabulous job driving their certifications and positioning them as a sort of general level of technical competence. I remember at one point, my CEO was saying he would buy a BMW for any engineer who got the CCIE. And I had to stop him from that. I said, Mm -hmm. that's a bad idea, Joe, Mm -hmm. because right now CCIEs are hard to get. Next year, it's going to be something in security that we need. And you're going to have all these people that have diverted time and energy into becoming CCIEs because they wanted the BMW. Mm. Um, And... And I think vendors try very consciously to make their certification kind of a generic IT certification so that they can get the lock-in you're talking about, Greg. Well, a lot of the certifications have become marketing. Uh, back oh, absolutely. There used to be a day when we did the 
there was questions of does company X do this? And the answer was always yes. We had to tick that. Right. You didn't even have to study for that. You just knew the answer was yes. Yeah. Because I, you didn't. I, exactly. In fact, I think you've uh, you've sparked a thought for, you know, the next the next discussion or an upcoming discussion. You've made a great argument for why the people making the decision shouldn't necessarily be people with the certifications and the technology because they've got an unstated bias towards the technology that they've got cer- Equally, gotten certified. They've in. got lots of insights into the you know true. So, so they should be they should be part of it, but they should not necessarily be making the decision. I don't so, feel like we've actually come up with too many actual answers here. I think we've been managed to flippy floppy around. But then again, oh, I, this, I I don't think so. I mean, it's very it's very clear to me that there's a process involved in mm. make in generating selection criteria and buying products. The most mm. companies don't do it right. They do it in the wrong order uh, or skip steps. And then that there's a great potential failure mode of treating the entire process as though it's ITIL or something like that and mm. not not buying into the spirit of the process, which is the goal of yeah. constantly going back and saying, yes, but what are we trying to accomplish and does this really accomplish it? So don't get bound to the process at, at all costs. Don't exactly. be a bureaucracy. Well, I exactly. think that'll be enough for today. We've run a little bit longer than our normal time, Jonah, so hopefully people are still with us. Thanks for listening to Heavy Strategy, where hopefully we've provided you some insights onto you answering the questions that you might want about building a technology strategy and how to select your technology provider. As always, uh, we would really appreciate it if you would tell your friends about the podcast. We'd like to keep growing the show and get more people engaged, and that will keep us producing this content to you. So tweet about us, publish something on LinkedIn, put a link to the podcast on your favorite social media platform that would be super helpful uh, if you want to give us feedback or give us ideas or, or give us questions that we want to hear from us about head on over to packetpushes.net slash fu where we'll be able to take your you know fill out the form it can be anonymous we don't track you or try and find you and just let us know what you're thinking Jonah has her own community at community.nomertes.com where you can go and join in and leave messages and uh, talk to people in the community there there's a heavy strategy group there if you want to drop in some messages And as always, remember that at Packet Pushes, too much technology would never be enough.